Hello and welcome to Real Property Insights with your host, Nolan Johnson. This is the very first episode of Real Property Insights, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. So what this podcast is, is primarily a real estate investing podcast. I think there's going to be something for kind of everyone, though. I, most people or everyone lives in some type of real estate, right? Whether it be an apartment, a house, a condo, townhouse, etc. You get the point everybody is involved in real estate somehow. So there's going to be tidbits of information for everyone, but primarily it's going to be focused on real estate investing. Now, if you don't think you're a real estate investor, but want to become a real estate investor, there's going to be a lot of tips for you on how to easily get into it or how to do it without having a lot of money down or practical solutions. Uh, if you have no money at all, different things. And there's also going to be advanced topics with tax deferred strategies, syndicate deals, more more advanced, more uh, higher level real estate investing. So there's going to be something for everyone for sure. Uh, why I'm doing this podcast. So I believe in the real estate industry and in, I guess, the kind of webinar learning material industry, there's a lot of bad information and people that just sell books and, and learning material and things like that, that don't provide much value for people. No, no practical advice. It's just higher level, rah, rah type of motivational stuff. So I think providing valuable information is, is going to be huge for you guys. And I think I can, I can do that for sure. Now, a little bit about my personal background. So you kind of know who you're listening to. So I have a long family history in real estate. Uh, my grandpa in Kentucky was a commercial developer, as well as an investor. My mom's been a real estate agent realtor for 20 or so years. Both my mom and my dad co-owned a custom home building company in residential. My mom's pretty avid investor in, in real estate. She does fix and we've always done, my family's always done fix and flips, buy holds. I've been surrounded by it since I was, you know, growing up a little kid. Two of my uncles own construction companies. I have aunts that are in real estate. One of my uncles owned a mortgage and title company. So I've been around the industry. Somehow, pretty much all my family is in is in this space. So I've pretty much grown up around it. I know a lot about it. Dove pretty deep myself. So a little bit about myself, I guess, is so I studied economics in college. Uh, first job out of college was a mortgage loan officer. I was a top producer in that. I uh, learned the mortgage industry pretty well. I now have both my mortgage broker's license and my real estate license. I do commercial deals as well as residential deals, you know, have, have been involved in, in investing, real estate investing for a few years now. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I'm pretty well versed in, in the subject. I also have a company called Simply Deferred. Uh, what that is, is a 1031 exchange qualified intermediary directory. So you can find your qualified intermediary, get the lowdown on, on all those companies out there. Uh, kind of a plug there, but just to let you know how I'm kind of involved in the industry as well. So in today's episode, I'd like to talk about a few basic things. So I'd like to talk about investing basics, and I'm going to cover three different ways to get into investing. So these are, I, I would say, the most three popular ways, the three most common ways to get into real estate investing. Uh, one of which you have, you have to, you don't have to have any money whatsoever or a real estate license or anything. The other two, you will have to have a little bit of money to put down, et cetera. But the first one, you don't have to have any money. So for all you newbies with no cash that want to get into real estate investing, somehow this is going to be great information for you. 
So let's talk about the first one. So the first one, wholesale investing. So what is wholesale investing? Basically what it is, is you go find some, some house that's not listed, or it could be listed. Uh, more, more often than not, if it's listed, it's going to be more competitive, so it won't work. But that's not always the case. So it could be listed or non-listed. And what you do is basically go to somebody, find a seller of the home, and you put an offer in. So let's say that offer gets accepted. Okay, that's fantastic. So you're under contract with a seller. But the caveat is you're not actually going to buy the property. So what you're going to do is go under contract. Now you have to go find a buyer of the property. So you're actually not buying the property. So you go find a seller, go under contract without the intent of buying the property. So now your job is to go find a seller. Maybe you already have one ahead of time. So maybe you talk to some investors and say, hey, if I go find you deals, I'll make a commission on this, but I'll find you good deals and under market value, et cetera, et cetera. So you can make some money and I get a commission on that. Real estate investors like that. They like the hustle. They don't have to put in as much work. You can do the work and still make some, some decent money without having to put money down. So there's a couple kind of tricks of the trade that definitely need to be taken into consideration when you're doing these. And they're pretty much to protect yourself. Because if you don't do these right, you're at risk for a lot of money, I guess, that you may or may not have. So when you go under contract with the seller, so you find a property, you go under contract with the seller, you need to make the contract contingent on two things. So one, you have to make it transferable to somebody else. You know, when you find the buyer of the property, you can just transfer that contract to that buyer. A second thing, and also very important, is you need to make the contract contingent upon the fact that you find a buyer. So if you don't find the buyer, you're not held liable to purchase the home yourself. That's huge. Obviously, if you, if you don't have the cash to do it, you could be out earnest money and potentially face a lawsuit and things like that, which you obviously don't want to get involved with. So make sure of those two things, and I'll repeat them. One, make the contract transferable. Two, make the contract contingent upon the fact that you find a buyer for the property. Huge, huge, huge. So you might say, okay, how do I go and find these sellers? Well, it's pretty much, you know, guerrilla warfare in a sense, just any, any way you can, you could look up a real estate agent to, you know, look up properties for you on the MLS, look for houses that are for sale. If you see some good deals that you think would be easy opportunities to make money or good opportunities to make money. We'll just go knock on the door and say, Hey, well, uh, I'd like to buy your house. I'll offer you this much. And you know, you run the numbers a little bit, meaning what do you think you can get for it after you fix it up a little bit or after the potential buyer fixes it up a little bit and make sure it's a good investment opportunity for both you and the potential buyer. But if you see something like that, just go ask to buy it. A lot of people will send out mailers, and you really have to do a lot of volume in mailers to make it effective. But a lot of people will send out mailers to maybe undervalued neighborhoods or neighborhoods that they think will appreciate in the coming years or year or short term. And basically, they just say, hey, I'll buy your house. I'm, I'm sure you've seen those signs around town or gotten a mailer yourself saying, hey, X and X company wants to buy or X and X person wants to buy your house. We'll offer you fair market value, yada, yada. And then you negotiate a good price that makes sense for, for everyone. So then, okay, now you have a seller in a home that you're under contract with. How do you find the potential buyer? Well, 
that's kind of the same principle. It's like, okay, any, any way you can, let's say, you know, a family friend that's in, into investing. Let's say there's a meetup group in your town for real estate investors. Let's say, you know, somebody with some cash that wants to, you know, invest in real estate or start their investing career. Another simple way might be to go find a bunch of realtors, call a bunch of realtors, say, Hey, I have this property I'm under contract with. It's a great opportunity for any investors. Do you have any investors in mind that could be interested? And most good real estate agents will always have some investors that they kind of work with on the regular. So that's a, that's a very good way to leverage real estate agents in, into finding a buyer for that property. So moving on to the second type of investing is the fix and flip. Now, pretty much everyone has heard of a fix and flip. This has been made popular by TV shows. You know, it's been kind of dramatized into it's the easiest thing to it's the easiest way to make money. It's the easiest thing ever. Everybody should do a fix and flip, yada, yada. But the truth is you can lose your ass pretty quick on a fix and flip if you don't know what you're doing. So it's very important to take things into consideration. So let's backtrack a bit and say, what is a fix and flip for those that don't know? So you find an undervalued kind of distressed property. What distressed means is a little run down, maybe not up to the standard of the rest of the neighborhood or the rest of the city. And if repairs were done to it, it could increase in value on par or uh, maybe even at a little bit of a premium from the rest of the neighborhood. So what you do in, in that instance, you can either come in with cash or you can get a loan Uh, Usually it's hard money for fix and flips because it's so short term, hard money or private lending or from a family friend, things like that. And so you buy it, you fix it up, and then you sell it in a short period of time to make a profit. There's a lot of things to consider with doing a fix and flip that a lot of people don't consider. And that's where you kind of lose, lose money. And, And it's, again, it's not this over-dramatized thing where it's super easy to make money. It's fairly difficult and you really need to crunch the numbers and make sure you're getting into something somewhat safe. There's always going to be some risk associated with it, but if you allow wiggle room with the numbers, only only jump into really safe ones where you have some uh, padding in the numbers, that's the best way to do it. So I'm a firm believer that when you buy a distressed property or an undervalued asset that you'd like to fix and flip, or not undervalued asset, but undervalued property that you would like to fix and flip, you should always buy it with equity at the closing table. So what I what do I mean by that is, although it might be distressed and a little bit run down, let's say it appraises for two hundred thousand, but you make an offer at one eighty five, and it gets accepted, right? Well, you already have fifteen thousand dollars of padding in equity, and although it's a dis- d- distressed or uh, undervalued property, well, it's still appraised for 200,000 and you got it for 185, even in the condition that it's in. So you're already ahead of the game. You're already $15,000 ahead of the game, which is huge in fix and flips. That's, that's kind of a key. Now you're asking why would anyone take an offer that low? Well, they don't know what the appraisal is until, unless they've gotten an appraisal themselves. I mean, you're the only one, if you order the appraisal, you're the only one that sees the appraisal. So it's not like they know exactly what their house is worth. And if it's a distressed property, they usually know that not all the time, but they usually, you know, understand, hey, my house is in less than great condition. So it's probably worth this much. And I'm happy to get that because I just don't want to deal with the headache. I want out. I want to move on from it. So a lot of the times you can make an offer under market value that will get accepted. Okay, so you have that down pat. So 
Now what you do is you get an inspection to see kind of what's being done or what needs to be done. And you run the numbers on that, right? So, and I'm, I'm not necessarily going in order of what you need to do. What I am doing is just hitting all the, all the basic steps that you need to do to make sure that you do the procedure right. Um, like I said, there's no, I'm, I'm going kind of out of order, but it's very easy to figure out the order when you're actually doing things. And I can maybe address that a little bit more um, towards the end of the fix and flip section here. But another thing you need to do is get an inspection from an inspector, see what needs to be done on the property for sure. See what might be, you know, hazardous or uh, dangerous in, in the most people's eyes and in the inspector's eyes. And you obviously need to fix those things. And also you, you need to check out what you think needs to be done. Maybe it's new paint, new carpet, new cabinets, new whatever to increase the new countertops to increase the value of the property so you can sell it at a higher profit. Now, you don't want to go too overboard and spend, you know, $50,000 to fix this thing up when it only needs $15,000. And now, you know, you're underwater, you're, you spent too much money, it's not, it's never going to be worth that, even though you, you know, put gold in the doors and put whatever, it's never going to be worth the $50,000 investment. So you got to be smart about it. It's kind of do the minimum required to make it look as good as possible. So some numbers you have to consider for sure are when you sell the property, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. Now, you're going to have to pay a couple different types of taxes. You're going to have to pay capital gains tax because you haven't held it for a certain number of years. You're going to have to pay sales tax. So you're going to have to pay tax and that could be fairly significant, right? Capital gains tax, I believe is around 30 short term capital gains tax is around 30%. I believe I might need to double check that but it's pretty high. It's, it's high nonetheless. So you need to factor that into the equation for sure. Uh, another thing you're going to have to do is pay both sides on the sale of the property. You're going to have to pay both sides of the real estate transaction. So what I mean by both sides is both realtors, the listing agent that you've hired and the buyer's agent that somebody else is going to be using to buy your property. Now, if you find some real estate agent that bring that can do both sides, so let's say you're listing with them and they bring you the buyer, a lot of the times, and a lot of this is why a lot of investors work with real estate agents, they'll take a much lower commission. So let's say instead of the 6%, they'll take 3% for doing both sides because they know you're going to continue to use them, one. And two, it makes sense for you because you don't have to pay 6%, right? They're, they're helping you out. They're doing, providing a service by lowering their commission to ensure that you stay with them and that you make money, right? Because it's a win-win if you're making money on, on that side. So they'll drop their commission to make you happy and make you a little bit more money. Now, obviously, you're going to have to consider the, the cost of uh, fixing the place up. Now, and you want to be accurate with that estimation, though. So what you want to do is get probably three construction companies to come out and give you estimates or bids on the work that you want done. So you don't want to just wing it, say, oh, that might be two grand, that might be five grand, that might be... 500 bucks you want to get accurate information like don't don't be an idiot like you know get some professional estimation so you can make a, an informed decision on what the right price is and if you should do the deal or not now some things to look out for when you're getting the inspection any major structural issues you want to steer clear from so let's say the foundation's cracked or let's say uh, one of the major support beams needs fixing in a, in a bigger home and you know, it's really big structural things. You want to just say, I don't want to deal with that. 
um, you know, that could be super, super expensive. You can go underwater really quickly. So unless you're very experienced and you know exactly what you're doing, I would say steer clear from, from structural issues. I'd also like to address some, some financing with fix and flips. So like I said, you could do hard money, you could do private money, you could use your own money, but I suggest doing hard money, even though it's a high, high interest rate for a couple reasons. One, you can more often than not hard money lenders will allow you to take a loan in an LLC and not have any personal, personal liability or personal collateral at risk. You're really not taking on that much risk in that instance. Now, obviously, you want to pay that lender back and you want to make money, so incentives are fairly aligned. But again, you're not, you're, you're not risking you and your family's well-being or your own personal house or your own uh, assets. So, so that's certainly worth taking the higher interest rate in my mind. Um, now, with hard money, you can expect double-digit interest rates, like low double-digit, let's say, you know, 10, 10%, 12%, things like that. So it is fairly high, but again, you're, you're taking on less risk because of that. And that's one thing that you also have to factor into the numbers is the interest that you're going to have to pay over the few months that you are carrying the property. I think that's it for fix and flips. Um, so let's move on to the third type of investing. And this is my personal favorite. Um, I think it has the most benefits, the most upside to it, and the least amount of risk, which is huge in my eyes. I want to limit risk as much as possible. So this is this is a big one for me, is the buy and hold and rent it out. Following the fix and flip thing where I, I think you should buy a property that's undervalued, right? So you can you should get it under market value so you have that cushion already. I believe that's huge in investing. I think, you know, I try to do that with, with all my deals. My family tries to do that with all their deals. I advise people to do that with all their deals. I mean, it's it, if you can find a property that's under market value, get an offer accepted under fair market value, that's huge. So buy and hold and rent it out. So what is it? So you buy, now you can go about it different ways. I like to do it. I like to buy a distressed property under market value, under the appraised value, fix it up a little bit and rent it out. Why, why, why would I like to do that? Well, again, you have that, that cushion, you put a little bit of money into it and you can increase the rents from, you know, when it was in poor condition and you bought it for a lower price, right? So let's say you buy a perfectly good house like it's in great condition it looks immaculate on the inside and outside it's spot on all right you buy it maybe at a premium maybe at fair market value i guess you take on more risk in that scenario because the rest of the market may go down a little bit because you bought it at a premium or fair market value so let's say you know the market goes down three percent over each year over the next four years well you bought it at a premium or at fair market value so the rents may be decreasing, so you're actually losing money because of the loan that you took on, the mortgage that you took on, or carrying costs or whatever for you, or the financing costs for you are higher than what you can get in rents. So buying an undervalued asset or distressed property really limits the risk that you carry. So what are the, I guess, pros and cons of doing a buy, hold, and rental? So a few things that it protects you from that fix and flips don't. It, and again, wholesaling, if you do it the right way with those contingencies, there's pretty much no risk. Uh, fix and flips, there's risk for sure. Now, buy and hold protects you from the fix and flip risks, the short-term risks, I guess, because 
you do you do go into this planning to hold it for you know until it's paid off basically so you find some renters hopefully you find some good renters make a good decision on that you know they they take care of the property they're in it for a long time you trust them compatible with them on on some level and obviously don't have to be best friends but you know you're, you're not just fighting with each other all the time they're they're not a stressor in your life because that's something that you have to consider is you know how much of a headache is this person going to be yada yada so you plan to hold it for a long time now the renter is paying down your loan or your mortgage over the life of the loan so you're not paying any premiums monthly hopefully if you're charging the right amount for rent i'd say at least charge couple hundred bucks over what you're paying in your mortgage and enough to make a little bit of money after paying a property manager uh, things to consider there so you're making monthly premiums while somebody else is paying down your loan and appreciation on homes is historically around four percent a year Um, you know after adjusting for inflation and things like that it's around four percent a year so not only is somebody paying off your mortgage you're also, you also have an appreciating asset of 4% a year historically. Now, another thing that you really want to look out for so you get more bang for your buck and you can beat the 4% is, again, the distressed property or undervalued properties. And this is in, in good areas, right? So let's say there's a new college being built or something, or the college is expanding in an area that might be a little bit run down, but you know in five years that that area that the college is going to get so big that that area is going to have to house college students and so you make an investment into that and somebody rents it out and that house appreciates way more than five percent a year because of that college population that's coming in actually a good example my mom did that she uh she we live here in colorado springs and uccs uh university of colorado at colorado springs has been expanding rapidly over the last few years and she bought a property it was like a hundred thousand dollar property i think she she bought it for 80 or to ninety thousand dollars it was in terrible condition uh put 30 grand into it i believe 20 30 grand and started renting it and over the next three years uh, i i believe it shot up to around two hundred thirty thousand. she got an appraisal and it was worth two hundred thirty thousand. maybe it wasn't 230 maybe it was like 210 or something i don't think it was as high as 230 but 210,000 from an 80,000, 90,000, whatever, plus 30,000. So she basically doubled her money. So she put around 110, 120 into it to buy it and to, to do the renovations. And now it's worth 210,000. And she is making money monthly from it because she, one, she bought it in cash. Two, uh, you know, she has somebody paying her rent. So. She's making money. It's appreciated way, way more than 5% a year, 4% a year. So you want to look for deals like that under undervalued assets in potentially increasing population areas, I guess. So you also want to kind of train your eye in to look for for good deals and good potential long-term deals. Uh, Now, the buy and hold also protects you from downturns in the market. So let's say you make a mistake. Let's say, you know, It was back in 2007 when the market was super, super hot. This is when subprime mortgages were a thing. They were, people were taking out loans that they couldn't pay back. Subprime lending was rampant. You know, it was 20% of the mortgage industry. 
and let's say you were an investor and you bought at the height of the market and then in 2008, 2009 had the biggest real estate market collapse in history. Well, if you do a fix and flip around that time, you're totally screwed. You're underwater, you're facing foreclosure and, and bankruptcy potentially in the whole mess, right? You don't, you don't want to get involved with that. But if you do a buy and hold, yeah, it still sucks that the market downturn, you're not making that appreciation that historically is shown to be, you know, 4% a year again, but you still are hopefully breaking even at least on your monthly rents. So whatever you owe in financing, or if you don't owe anything, yeah, it kind of sucks. You'll probably take a hit on your rents. Maybe not. Sometimes when a lot of people default, the rental market actually goes up. So maybe you can make a little bit of money, more money on the rents. But let's say you're at least breaking even or making a premium on your monthly rents. Well, even if your property value dropped by $50,000, it doesn't necessarily affect you from day-to-day -day life. It only affects you on paper. So you're still maintaining your, your quality of life. You're still maintaining those monthly rents. Those, you're getting the monthly rent checks. And let's say you hold that property for another 10, 15 years. Well, now the market's at a new high. And sure, like you bought it at a terrible time. You can't time it perfectly. But somebody's still paying down your loan. So you have 100% equity, let's say, and let's say you took a 15 year note on it, and you held it for 15 years, well, that person or whoever rented it throughout those years, paid down your financing, they paid down your mortgage. And although it didn't appreciate as much as you wanted it to, you still own 100% of that property by only putting 20% down or whatever it is that you put down. So that's a no brainer. I mean, yeah, it wasn't a home run, but it was still a good base hit, a good double down the line to use baseball terminology that you still won with, right? So it's still an asset. You own hundred percent of it. You can keep printing it out. You could sell it at that point. You have many options. So buy hold is definitely, definitely my number one suggestion. If you have some money to work with, again, you're going to have to put like 20% down usually on, on investment properties. But if you have that money, buy and hold is the way to do it. If you have zero dollars, going back to the first type of investing that we talked about, wholesale investing, then that type of investing is for you. All right, guys, I think that wraps it up for the, for the day. We talked about three different types of investing, investing basics, uh, wholesaling, fix and flipping, and the buy and hold strategy and renting that property out. Now, if you have any questions, uh, please email me. Let's see, we could use Nolan Johnson RE. Or no, let's go realpropertyinsights at gmail.com. Or no, better yet, let's go nolan at realpropertyinsights.com. Email any questions, comments, concerns, advice, tips, etc. you'd like to know at nolan at realpropertyinsights.com. Follow me on Instagram. It, my Instagram name is I am Nolan Johnson. Follow me on Facebook. Uh, you know, Nolan Johnson, I don't know what my username is. And go check out the website. It's realpropertyinsights.com. Check out simplydeferred.com. That's that 1031 exchange qualified intermediary directory I was telling you about that I've started. And good luck, guys. Thanks for listening and enjoy your day.